According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 1 again this evening, Philippians 1.11, uh, tying together some of the last details here in these uh, first few verses. We're taking verses 3 through 11 as a unit and uh, developing those uh, and then we'll move on, uh, when I get back from my trip, we'll move on to verses 12 and following. That assumes we uh, can tie everything together tonight that, uh, that I anticipate we'll be doing. Remember, uh, in fact, this is a good time to remind you, if you did not see the email or you don't do email, um, that um, there is no evening schedule on Sunday. All right, We're going to do the two morning services and then we're dismissed for the day. There's no evening schedule this coming Sunday. If you come Sunday evening, uh, yours will be the only car in the parking lot, and the doors will be locked, and then you go, oh yeah, Pastor Bob said there was uh, no evening schedule on Sunday. Also, next Wednesday morning, no Proverbs class next Wednesday morning, so you want to be aware of that as well. All right, Philippians chapter 1, and uh, this prayer, this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in epinosis, real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may dokimazo, you may approve the excellent things in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And uh, this is the content of what we've been looking at. It builds on that in verse 11, which shows us part of the process, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And now that I'm looking at it, I'm skeptical we're going to get through all that tonight. <laughs> but Lord's in charge. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking him to bless our time of study, to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us as we assemble to study his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace tonight, thankful for your truth, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your patience, Father, that you so uh, patiently and, and, and perfectly uh, shepherd us, you watch over us, you, you um, provide for our growth, the things that we need to learn, when we need to learn them, the things we learn academically, the things we learn through application, the things we learn in our victories and the things we learn in our failures, Father, um, and you are faithful every step of the way. So we call upon that faithfulness once again tonight knowing that uh, our study of your truth is not uh, going to happen because we're so smart to figure these things out. It's going to happen because you're so faithful to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, bless, uh, bless your truth tonight. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to start with some opening questions. It's kind of become our practice on Wednesday nights to take about 10 minutes for some Q&A time, have a chance to follow up on things maybe that we're not so clear on Sunday. We'll come up here to the front row. And uh, in fact, we got two people in the front row that I promised questions tonight. So Robert gets our opening question here. If uh, Kevin can bring the microphone up. Appreciate that. You're our, uh, we've got to find you a Spider-Man shirt if you're going to be our uh, microphone runner tonight. No? All right. You were talking the other day about... Um, evangelism in the Old Testament mm -hmm. and made the point that you believe that Adam and Eve got saved 
well, still in the garden, basically, before they were... The, I've been po pondering this. They get saved, they get dressed, and then the scripture sounds rather forceful. He drove them out. Mm -hmm. That seems a little forceful for people who are repentant and have become newly saved. I just You didn't go to that, and I wondered what you might say about that. I don't know. Uh, it is a strong verb, and it is uh, that Yahweh is the one who drove them out, and he put an angel there with a flaming sword to keep them from coming back. Um, I, I don't know how much weight I want to put on the force of, of that one particular verb and it's it's not that different either from when the holy spirit drove jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil uh there's other expressions i think that are comparable when uh the spirit leads or god directs or, or something like that happens so um but i'll think about it and maybe uh maybe at some point i'll put more weight to that to that verb than i've done up till now mm-hmm Okay, yeah, yeah, and, and if you come up with something, let me know. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, we were talking about this morning Old Testament salvation and, and what kind of gospel preaching happened in the Old Testament and because uh, they didn't have John 3.16, they didn't have Romans 3.23, they didn't have Acts 16.31, and some of our favorite evangelism verses that we love to use, uh, they weren't written yet in, uh, in the Old Testament. So what, what were the verses that were written in the Old Testament, and what were the scriptures that believers would use in order to communicate that the unregenerate needed to believe, and, uh, and how that happened. So when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus acted like, you know, that was the craziest thing he'd ever heard. And, and he shouldn't have. That should have been well understood. And Jesus was stunned. He said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So um, anyway, that was a good study this morning and I enjoyed that. And, and uh, I want to explore that a little bit more, I think, in some of our upcoming Proverbs classes as we were doing that. All right. So that's that question. Uh, Chuck, I promised a question tonight or two or three or... My phone just kept dingling, dingling all the way driving. To, it was text messages that were coming in from Chuck while I was driving to church tonight. Okay, so I was asking, I was going to ask about Hebrews 1, 3, mm -hmm. B. After he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mm -hmm. So my question is, I understand you're making a distinction between purification of sins and other places about sin. I was wondering what the what the distinction was again? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sin in the singular uh, references a, a, a state, a sphere, a realm, and specifically with respect to humanity, with respect to Adamic sin. Uh, because it's through one man that sin entered into the cosmos and death through sin. And so that's sin in the singular, sin as an estate, which is uh, God's judgment upon Adamic humanity for Adam's fall. Um, and that's, that's what Jesus removed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the wages of sin, singular, is death. All right? But then sins, plural, with respect to individual, what we, we might call personal sins or deeds or things of that nature, the things that are done that then leave defilements behind, for example, such as the angelic rebellion and the angelic sins and the, the consequences that left the heavenly temple in a defiled circumstance. And so Hebrews talks about that, talks about how Jesus ascended into heaven to cleanse, not the copies, but the reality, to, to, to cleanse the heavenly temple. And that's the whole content of chapter 9, is about Jesus cleansing the heavenly temple. And, and in, um, I think theologically you want to understand that 
that a purification is different from a forgiveness, is different from a removal, is different from a, a, a redemption or an atonement. And so all of these concepts, they all happen on the cross, that is Jesus shed his blood on the cross, but then um, what, when was that, the application then made? Okay? So if an animal dies and the blood is, is collected, and then, then later the blood is it's either sprinkled or it's smeared or it's applied or somehow... Uh, it's it's employed to uh, to either cleanse or atone or forgive, and so um, with respect to the blood of Christ and the work that He did on the cross, He went into heaven and He cleansed the uh, the, the heavenly temple, and that's uh, in in Hebrews one three uh, when He had made purification of sins plural, He then sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So the setting for that is is heavenly, where He took a seat where He did His cleansing. So when, 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 which one of those is our per, are our personal sins wrapped up into the Adam sin or the later on sins? The sins plural. As far as when he puts them in a bag, when he seals them, when he throws them behind his back, and he casts them into the depths of the sea. Yeah, there's there's other passages that address that. Hebrews one does not address that. But that's sins plural. That's sins plural. Yes. Okay, so it's a different. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And sometimes too, it's also transgressions. Sometimes it's also remember we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, and so uh, there's a distinction to be found there. And uh, and it's our transgressions that are sealed in a bag and cast behind his back into the depths of the sea. Yeah. All right. And he paid for those on the cross too. Our sins, our as opposed to just Adam's. Sin. Right, right. There's no sin that was not dealt with because when he returns at second advent, it's without reference to sin. So you want me to ask the Revelation question? Okay. All right. So Revelation chapters 2 and 3 uh-huh. talk about the different churches in the church age. Right. And, there, and he says, if you overcome, I will give you such and such. Uh-huh. Well, that would imply that some people are Christians, but they don't overcome. So are all believers in the church age overcomers? Are some of them just not? Okay. I'm going to answer that um, because there's some assumptions which come about which result in a misreading or, or things of like that nature. There's no if. They're not conditional statements. It's not if he overcomes or if he doesn't overcome. If he overcomes, he gets this reward. If he's a loser, he doesn't. Um, that's not in view in Revelation. There, to, him, to him who overcomes, he who overcomes. And then we have participles that speak of the one who, the one who. And ultimately, the one who is Jesus. He's the overcomer. But we are in Jesus, and that's that's very important as well. And so um, to, to him who overcomes, and it says this seven times, Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And, and so we can, we can outline all seven of these, and it's useful. It's, it's out, uh, put, write down the verse and write down what the, what the award is, what the reward is. And then um, for the pastors and for the others who, who teach that these are conditional, that teach this as if it's an if, which it's not, uh, but but then then they end up with certain believers um, missing out on some things that seem universal to be to be saved, like not being hurt by the second death. Uh, in verse eleven, he um, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And to me, that's the worst one of all. If you're going to try to say, well, this is a conditional thing. If you overcome, then you won't be hurt by the second death. But if you don't overcome because you're a carnal believer or a church age loser or some kind of a you know 
Methodist. Then, um, <laughs> joking, okay, I'm just joking. But the point being, um, now, there are other passages of Scripture that make very clear that there are uh, conditional rewards, that there are degrees of reward. Some will rule over one city or five cities or ten cities. Uh, some will have uh, ten talents and some will only have one talent. And that guy who only has one is going to be taken away from him and given to the guy that's got ten. Okay? So there are many, many passages that address the, the scale of reward. And there will be, Judgment Seat of Christ says, some, some will have nothing. They'll just be saved yet as through fire. They'll have their eternal life and the resurrection bodies and nothing else to show for for it. So there are many, many passages that address that. I just don't believe that the Revelation 2 and 3 passages do so. And the reason why is because we have this statement of he who overcomes, and ultimately he who overcomes, it's not an if, it's to the one who does. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a present active participle that speaks of that, the verb is nakao, it's like the present active participle that speaks of uh, pistuo, he who believes. The one who believes has eternal life. Okay? And, and we never ever want to take those statements, because those are statements of position, positional truth reality. We don't ever want to say, well, yeah, I used to believe, but I don't believe anymore. Now I've, I've, I've quit believing years ago. And, and so, so because of that, I'm no longer hopistoon, I'm no longer he who believes. And, and so I've lost my salvation, I've lost my eternal life. You see why that's a non-starter? Okay? It's the same thing here with Han Nikon, with, with, with uh, the, the overcomer, to the one who overcomes. And so it's a positional truth reality. We are overcomers in Christ. And um, so we have this here. Uh, it's in 1 John. Where is it in 1 John that it says this is uh, that, uh, that has overcome the world, uh, that is our faith, right? And here we go. 1 John 5 4. See, Logos is making me lazy. Uh, 1 John 5 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so, First uh, John 5, I think, is the same author as Revelation. The epistles of John immediately preceded Revelation. I think um, that would have been the passage in, that would have been at the forefront of their thinking when they received Revelation 2 or 3. So, um, but there are pastors, good pastors, faithful pastors, pastors smarter than me that, uh, that teach that differently. Uh, but my conviction is the overcomer is the church-age believer in Christ. All right, excellent questions. I appreciate that. All right, we're going to go to the far right. We have a question over here. You touched on a subject I've thought about several times and never remembered to ask you later on. In John chapter 3, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? What is it that the Hebrew teachers should have been teaching that they weren't? Because they're going through the ritual. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit confused, too, because uh, when you're reading it in through the Levitical law and stuff, you have to do this, don't do that, do this. But very little of it refers to a new birth or being born again. I think a lot of it does, and uh, we just don't see it. 
but this morning we saw a dozen passages that all spoke about really? heart obedience and heart repentance and, and the whole command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's, that's, uh, that's not liturgical, but it is Levitical. And so uh, there's, a, there's a whole reality there. And I think, uh, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I think is explained very well by uh, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so you get Pharisees that know more than anybody else, but minus the love, they have no edification, they have no growth, they have no um, epinosis, even with all the right. gnosis that they have. So, um, yeah, and so if you want to get on the on website, uh, get the Proverbs class from this morning. And, uh, and listen to that, because we hit a lot of those passages this morning that showed uh, from the psalmists to Proverbs to Job to uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy. There's an awful lot of spiritual reality in all of that ritual. Okay. Thank yeah. you. All right. All right. Uh, behind you there? Well, you guys came loaded. Uh, my question was about Hebrews 8.12 and uh-huh. Hebrews 10.17 which uh, essentially say the same thing. My question is, though, is there a difference in the original Greek that would differentiate those two or cause them to have a different meaning? 8.12 and 10.17? Yeah. Um, Yeah, they are different in the Greek. And... Yeah, they are different in the Greek. They look very similar in the English. Um, Isaiah 43, Jeremiah 31, 34. Of course, that's the New Covenant. Yeah. Tell you what, I'll take a look at these and uh, have an answer for you, not next week, but in two weeks. Let me just make a note and uh, add a note to Wednesday Q&A because I want to look at that closer. Hebrews 8.12 and Hebrews 10. What was the other passage? 10.17? All right. I'll add a note to that passage as well. Wednesday Q&A. All right. Yes, you're welcome. I want to look at that. You piqued my interest. All right. Well, if I did not get to your question, uh, I apologize. You can raise your hand faster next time. If you can't wait two weeks, uh, shoot me an email, and uh, we can uh, always answer questions by email as well. So, But this is good. We had a good night tonight with... Uh, questions. I want to get to uh, back to Philippians and deal with what we're looking at here because this is uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, the Thanksgiving prayer is followed by an ongoing intercessory prayer. And everything that he was thankful for looking back at how they had been partners with him and they had served with him and everything that he was rejoicing over in kind of hindsight then impelled him to look forward to even greater things to what he was excited about, where they were going to go, what the Lord was going to do with, uh, with his readers. And so, um, as, as we said already in verse 9, this I pray. So now he's moving forward in his prayers. 
in, in verses 3 and following, it was kind of looking back with the, what he was thankful for. But now is moving forward. He says, This I pray that your agape may parasuo, your love may abound still more and more. And he wants them to thrive, and he wants them to thrive in agape love. And so we took quite a bit of time to deal with all this and to remind ourselves that agape is not an emotion. It's a way of thinking. It's an attitude that comes from being transformed into the image of Christ himself. That God is love. And the more we abound in love, the more God-like we are, the more Christ-like we are. And that it's not uh, love does not abound in um, sentimentality and uh, passion, okay, or anything else that you might want to attach there emotionally. It says real knowledge and all discernment, epinosis and all discernment, okay. And so we realize that agape is is a is an attitude in which we look at things, we look at people, we look at circumstances, we look at the opportunities we have to express love to to others, and that's the uh, the thing there. And so love does not abound in. Uh, in uh in in passion and uh uh you know the the butterflies you know the 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 thumper got twitter pated there in uh, in if you remember that in bambi and and because she bats her eyes and and she looks pretty and smells nice and and that's that's not we're not talking love at that point okay we're not talking agape at that point there's other words for love that apply to the physical and apply to the romance and apply to the uh, rapport and the fellowship and the, the intimacy uh, and, and so forth. This is agape. And don't confuse agape with, uh, with those other things. So agape abounds in epinosis and all discernment. And the reason why we want to have this abounding love is not just to have love, but to use that love. And in that love, we are then equipped to approve to dokimazo to approve the things that are excellent and and by approving the things that are excellent we are not approving the things that are not excellent we are distinguishing and we are highlighting in those things that we distinguish the things that are different and the things that are different uh, are very clearly some are better and uh, we highlight that and uh, then in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And that's really where we ran out of time as we were dealing with that. So if I get ahead here on my slideshow and get us back to what we were uh, looking at. Well, we've got a lot of slides in this section. Let's go to um, now there. There's point 10. And then we had subpoint A for love to abound. Subpoint B, full knowledge and discernment. We, t- we went into the vocabulary of epinosis and eisthesis. Um, the appraisal of abounding agape allows us to demonstrate the differences. We demonstrate the differences. We are portraying the will of God to this lost and dying world as we demonstrate the differences, the things that differ. And they should look at us. You know, if a, if a little Hebrew kid was going to ask his parents, what's different about this day? And the parents would then have a response about what's different about this day. Well, our equivalent for that whole concept uh, should center on uh, you and I living in the, the biblical norms and standards as New Testament believer priests, and the things that are different should be readily observed as being different. Why do we do what we do? Why do we not do what we don't do? What's different about us as pilgrims and strangers, as aliens in this lost and dying world? We appear as lights in the midst of the, you know, the, the, the crooked and perverse generation. So the things that differ... All the application there. And notice, it's not, it's not uh, gnosis. 
It's, it's the uh, abounding love, okay? In epinosis and discernment that allows us to demonstrate these things. The demonstration slash approval of the excellent things, it keeps us sincere and blameless. Keeps us sincere and blameless. And that's, uh, I think, the, the last expression there in verse 10, in order to be. So we have a purpose clause and we have a result, okay? And the purpose clause is the so that, so that you may approve. That's the purpose for having the abounding love. But then the result of having the abounding love and approving the things that are excellent, the consequence then is in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And so uh, the, uh, the anticipation of, of being ready to stand at the Bema, the, uh, the excitement about standing at the Bema. We're not in dread of the, of the judgment seat of Christ. We're not uh, shrinking away in shame at His appearing. If the trumpet sounds right now, uh, we're not disappointed, we're excited, we're ready, we're thrilled. Uh, we, are, we are more than ready to stand and be held accountable because we're already standing and held accountable. We, we, uh, we hold uh, uh, ourselves accountable all day, every day. We, we're living our life on that transparent basis already, even now. And so just because the Bema is not formally in session yet, uh, we're ready as if, it, if it's going to happen today. And, uh, and so we can already be, even now, in time, sincere and blameless. Today, right now. Today, tonight, tomorrow, and every day. All day, every day, until the day of Christ. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is getting ready for, this is like, um, you know, uh, the last minute panicky cramming before a midterm because, uh, because you were goofing off all semester and uh, now you're terrified because you're going to pay the price for all that goofing off all semester. And so you kind of cram the night before just to salvage whatever, you know, grade you can scrape by with. But really it would have been a whole lot better all along if you had been walking right in the first place and uh, preparing and studying and learning and growing and knowing so that when the examination day comes, it, you just take it in stride. It's, it's par for the course. It's the normal routine and, uh, and those aspects there. All right. And so uh, whether it's alacrinase, the idea of sincere or sincerity, we have some vocabulary there. And then we did run out of time. I didn't exactly look at this point, but there's not a lot to look at there. Acts 24.16 is a use of aproskopos. And I misread it and mispronounced it on Sunday and I told myself I wasn't going to do it and then I kind of knew I would anyway. But um, Acts 24.16. The reason why is because there's so many Greek terms that begin with apo, A-P-O, and it's a common prefix. And if you're just looking at it real quickly, your eye kind of looks at it and sees an apo there, but it's not. It's an a, and then a P-R-O-S, pros, and uh, proskopos, okay, with the alpha in front of it. So um, anyway, it's without blame. And in Acts 24, 16, the, uh, the expression is used there. Um, Paul says here, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men, Okay. And if you think about what a conscience does, a conscience will prick, it will poke, it will, um, it will convict. Okay? That's what a conscience is designed to do. And if, uh, if you're blameless, then there's nothing your conscience is going to poke you with. And uh, that's the kind of the idea here. It's not being sinless and perfect, but it's saying before the Lord, hey, 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so I'm not beating myself up with guilt and, and, uh, and that. All right, so uh, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, okay? That's huge. That, that shows us a consistency here and now, a consistency in time that, uh, that can be our blessing, all right? But uh, I'm going to stress this again. When you're looking at the, uh, this is where it's not so much vocabulary as it is syntax. It's the actual grammars, the structure of these sentences that um, if, if, we, if we twist it and put it around backwards, I think we end up with emotional Christianity. I think we end up with uh, what I call light and fluffy. It's, it's, it's not good, all right? Which takes sincerity and it, instead of taking it as a consequence or an outcome, it shoves it up front and it makes it a uh, prerequisite. It makes it a requirement. It makes it a focus. And then, and then, uh, and then people will substitute that as if it has value somehow, as if somehow it counts for something. Saying, well, yeah, I was wrong, but I, I sincerely um, tried, okay? I, I was sincere. Yeah, you were sincerely wrong, okay? Let's, uh, let's, let's keep this in, in the right perspective. So sincerity is not a tool to accomplish something else. Not in this text, all right? Here, sincerity is the outcome. And so again, as you're looking at these sentences, you, you see the prayer request, you see then the, um, the purpose clause, with the so that, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's the whole purpose to having the abounding love. So you want to have the abounding love. We're asking God to provide that. So this I pray, that your love may abound. And the purpose for that is that you may approve the things that are excellent. And then the outcome, right, uh, when you do approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So keep those phrases distinct and keep them in the right, in the right sequence with the purpose and with the outcome. And I think, uh, I think you'll do real well with it in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Then we've got to deal with these other issues here in verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, and um, this verse uh, is, is easy to ignore. I think this verse is easy to overlook, and it shouldn't be. Um, we're not just rushing through the end of a doxology so we can move on to the next paragraph. In, in, in many respects, this final expression uh, speaks volumes, and we want to make sure that we don't miss the impact on this. Having been filled. Having been filled. So, We've had a progression, we've had a sequence, we've been moving steadily forward, okay? So I'm asking for love to abound, and love's going to abound in real knowledge and all discernment, so that, okay, purpose clause, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be, okay? Following all that, all that's a sequence, all that's moving forward. We can think of this as a linear progression moving forward, but now we're slamming on the brakes and we're backing up a little bit because this having been, this having been is a, uh, a uh, prior necessity. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
And so we have a, a perfect tense. In fact, it's a perfect passive participle. And it actually backs up in that whole sequence to show us what is necessary for and prior to all of the above processes. Okay? So before I'm going to be sincere and blameless, before I'm going to approve the things that are excellent, okay? And probably equal to and as I am abounding more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. I think it probably go backs up at least that far. Comes this fruit. Comes with God. And God is loving us and God is disciplining us and God is producing and filling us with the fruit of righteousness. With the fruit of righteousness. So, we'll discuss this as well, all right? Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And I love that translation. To me, it's, 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 it's accurate. It's, um, it, it resonates. I think it expresses the perfect passive participle in a marvelous way, which has to precede the action of the main verb. Okay? And we do, it's not complicated. It's not some kind of an esoteric Greek thing. We do the same thing in English. Okay? Um, I am teaching class right now having uh, walked up to the pulpit. Right? So having walked up into the pulpit and having opened in prayer and having, you know, we can, we can keep filling all having, 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 having. And all of that, it says, is that all of that's activity that got done first prior to and as a requirement, as something necessary for whatever else then followed. Okay? So in order to be sincere and blameless in the day, until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ and the glory and praise of God. So we're backing up to show the, what the, on God's side of things what God's doing. Okay? How God is answering this prayer. How is God causing love to abound? Well, He's filling us with the fruit of righteousness. Okay? He's working in and through us that which is pleasing in His sight. He's doing so through the loving discipline of a father to his child. This expression, fruit of righteousness, is not an accident. Okay? It appears here, it appears in Hebrews 12.11, and then there's comparable expressions that can be found in Ephesians 5.9 and James 3.18. All right. So having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So um, I'm going to take this kind of in a backwards order just to make sure that we're clear on the, on the perfect passive participle. Um, we're familiar, maybe the, the, the easier passage we're comfortable with is Matthew 16, 19. You're familiar with that because it's the binding and loosing passage that Jesus was talking to Peter. So let's go ahead um, at the risk of losing everybody. We're going to go to Matthew 16 now. And we're not talking about fruit. We're not talking about love. We're not talking about anything from Philippians. I'm just showing you a grammatical construction. I'm showing you a perfect tense. And how the perfect tense precedes the subjunctive, how it precedes um, other verbs that will be in, in a passage. So Matthew 16, 19. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but um, but I think it's one that does get abused. Um, Matthew 16, you remember this? This is where Peter becomes the first pope and the Roman Catholic Church got founded in the I'm teasing, okay? That's mythology, okay? That's the mythology. They will claim this. Roman Catholicism will claim this as it's the only clue or chance they have to try to claim supremacy over anything in any event. Um, 
So this is where he asks, well, who do the people think I am and who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, thou art the Christ, son of the living God, and that's it. That is the testimony. That is the confession. And if you identify Jesus as the Christ, and, and uh, that confession then is, is uh, what it means to be saved and to be in the church. And so that's the, the rock upon which the church is built, is that confession. And um, anyway, in the process of all this, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But then this statement here in verse 19, okay? Understand that the church age is, is, uh, is unique, that we are a heavenly citizenship, that we operate in the heavenly places in Christ. We're seated at the right hand of, of the Father in Christ. And so we have activity that is both earthly and heavenly. And it says so here, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, and this is uh, in, in, in present time and in, in a subjunctive mood, so whatever you might or might not, but whatever you do presently, shall already have been bound in heaven. Notice that? And so there's two bindings that happen. There's whatever you bind on earth, and that's what happens in, uh, in the, the human realm here on earth with you know, pastors and churches, and, and there's, there's binding, and then there's loosing. But whatever is done here on earth, biblically now, needs to be, is designed to be a reflection of something that has already happened in heaven. Because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. All right? And so as it says here, what, whatever, what, that which you presently bind on earth shall have been bound. That's a perfect passive right there. Okay? Already done. The perfect tense is a, is a past tense. It's one that speaks of a past completed result, uh, uh, event with present ongoing results shall have been bound. Okay? Anyway, I don't want to get lost in the doctrine here because this is a whole sermon on its own, but, but just recognize that when you have a perfect tense and then you have a present tense or an aorist or something else, right? And it's in the subjunctive mood especially, that's the mood of potential, and, uh, which we have here, which we have back in Philippians. Uh, but the, the perfect tense verb comes first. That's having been done. So for us to be, era subjunctive, for us to be sincere and blameless, for us presently to be sincere and blameless, that only happens if we have, in the perfect tense, having been filled. Having been filled. Having been filled. So the perfect passive participle, having been, precedes the present active subjunctive, you may be. You may be. All right, does that make sense? All right. There's, there's a lot of grammar in, in that, but, and it's really no different than, like I say, in English. So having, having ascended to the pulpit, uh, I'm now confusing everybody in the room, okay? That's uh, having, having done this, I'm now doing that. So we have similar expressions in, in Really, I think any language can, can convey a concept of that nature. So, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so now we want to kind of look at that phrase and say, well, when does the Father do that? What's the process of the Father doing that? Is that, uh, that obviously that precedes the being sincere and blameless, but since being sincere and blameless is the outcome of approving the things that are excellent, um, could it then be that 
the Father filling us with the fruit of righteousness, does that coincide with approving the things that are excellent? Or does it back up even prior to that with, uh, I think, uh, the, the best place to, pe- to peg it is in the uh, abounding love. Uh, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. That that, as we're learning to grow in love, as our love is increasing, um, what a better venue for our love to be increasing than for the Father to be uh, bearing that fruit, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, so um, there's a lot we've got to unpack here because if I'm going to get filled, um, I want to know how this happens. Is this the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is the same as being uh, filled... um, it being filled with the fruit of righteousness, is that the same as bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Is, it, is this an equivalent statement to Galatians 5 or is it something different? What's happening here? And why does this all appear to be the Father doing something inside of me through Jesus Christ? And then to the glory and praise of God, coming back to the Father when all is said and done. All right. So uh, here's our term, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, this, uh, again, the main point, the necessary for and prior to all the above processes is the loving discipline of God producing and filling us with the fruit of righteousness. Let's look at Hebrews 12. Let's see how the Father does this. Now, we may not like it, um, and chances are we won't, because uh, at the time, as we're going through it, it's not, it's not fun, but it's necessary, and it works together for good. And it's, uh, it's a part of what we all have to go through. Even Jesus himself had to learn through the things that he suffered. All right? And so there's a lot here to it. Um, Hebrews 12, 11, and there's a context for this, but It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Back up just slightly, because this is is what we're doing here. We are sons, and um, we have the Hall of Fame of chapter 11, we have Jesus in chapter 12, and we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're considering Him. The more we're locked in on Jesus, the less we're going to be locked in on ourselves. The antidote to being selfish is occupation with Christ, right? And um, he says here in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And this is quite a rebuke. The the author here, Luke, or whoever he is, the author of Hebrews is really admonishing his audience that they used to know some things and they've, they've lost track. Okay? You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. There's a memory verse for you. Okay? Put that on your refrigerator. And thank God for it when the discipline comes. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. You know, this is some serious discipline. This is like a Mel Gibson special effects movie. This is scourging. And the Father does this to those that He loves. If you don't like this, if you don't want this, then what are you saying? You want to you you be reclassified into this other group over here that God doesn't love? Because He loves you. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. He wants you to grow. 
And discipline is going to bring that about. And so it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. Hello? You're saved. What'd you expect? God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question, but the answer is the son that the father does not love or the son that the father does not acknowledge. Okay? That's not my son. That's, that bastard's not mine. I don't claim that son. Okay? But if he claims you, if you name the name of Christ, if you belong to the Father, well then, this is your birthright. The hand of God's discipline. It's a beautiful thing. It goes on to say that uh, if you are without discipline, in verse 8, of which all have become partakers, then you are bastards. Illegitimate children and not sons. And that's a powerful text. I hope when we get to this chapter I can preach this in such a way because this is totally lost. Our culture has lost any sense of what it means to be born in wedlock or born out of wedlock or to be married before you start having babies or to be, uh, you know, any of that. It's just like if you, if you even say something out loud, then you're some kind of a kook, some kind of a Puritan from the Victorian age and, and whatever, you know. But hello, this is what God has, has laid out for our blessing and uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And there is a difference between an, an heir and a bastard. All right. Anyway, and, and there's other encouragement that comes through all this. Uh, yeah, earthly fathers, they do their best. Okay, God bless them, but they sometimes they're just winging it and they don't really know. It says in verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Okay? And sometimes it was too much and sometimes it was too little and sometimes... Uh, sometimes he blamed the wrong kid. Okay, It was the other one that really did it and the, the one that didn't do it took the rap. And man, all right. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. He knows what he's doing and it's never too much and it's never too little and it does what he wants it to do. And so all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. At the point where it's being applied, it doesn't feel good. It hurts. It's supposed to hurt. But yet, to those who have been trained by it, notice that? It's training. It's discipline. It's corrective. It's instructive. It's always remedial. It's always instructive. It's always edifying. To those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields, and now here's our terminology, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of of righteousness. And so there we have it. Okay? And it's it's found in Philippians 1 and it's found here and it's part of what God does. And if you if you do what you can to avoid it or get away from it or ignore it or pretend it's not happening or or uh, not learn the lessons you're supposed to learn in it, then what you're really doing is keeping yourself from reaching that place where you can be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. I think that's, uh, that's, in, that's just an integral aspect here of, uh, of this. All right. And so that's Hebrews 12, 11. We also have, I think, um, not identical expressions, but close enough uh, in Ephesians 5, 9 and in James three eighteen. And you'll see what I mean. Um, even in this text here, we have fruit, we have righteousness, and it's called the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And uh, that concept of peace or shalom or wholeness, I think, uh, comes out in this. 
Ephesians 5.9 is another passage that uh, we might put in a, uh, in a study related to this. Recognizing that this is our uh, new position in Christ. This is who we are as believers. That uh, we used to be in darkness, but no longer. And uh, so, um, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that old manner of life before we got saved, that's, it's, we want no part of that anymore. The time past is sufficient. Verse 5 says, You know with certainty that no fornicator or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's the, that's the lost estate. We got rescued from that. So let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's what we used to be. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's chapter 2, okay? Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, you're no longer of them, but you can still be a partaker with them. And that's key. There's nothing, there's no sin that an unbeliever does that, that a believer can't do. We can do anything. Any sin that the unbeliever does, we can do the same sins. So don't be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's pursue our new nature. Let's pursue our new course. And along with this then comes this fruit of, of righteousness. Now, it, it injects a, a light concept here, which is why I think it's not exactly parallel to what we're looking at tonight in Philippians 1, but still it's a close, close uh, cousin. All right. Maybe not a sister passage, but certainly a cousin. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn or dokimazoing, proving what is pleasing to the Lord. Remember, we were looking this this verse came up as we were dealing with the dokimazo just last week. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, or demonstrating, proving what is pleasing to the Lord. And so this fruit of light, this fruit of light, who's bearing this fruit? Am I bearing this fruit? Does this mean I'm in fellowship? Or is it bigger than that? Does it mean that yes, I'm in fellowship, but also the Father is working in and through me? Is this really what happens when I'm abiding in Christ, when I'm abiding in the vine? Okay? Because the Father's the one that's the vine dresser. The Father's the one that's working. The Father's the one that's lifting up and pruning. And, and uh, it's the Father that's working in and through you, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. And so we have the aspect of it there. How about James 3.18? Another kissing cousin, we might say. James 3.18. Especially given the... Uh, well, Paul's approach, of course, was children of light or children of wrath and walking in light versus walking in darkness. James teaches the same doctrine, but the language that he uses here is contrasting the wisdom from above with the wisdom from below. But it still is the same doctrine, it's the same principle. We're either walking according to that which pleases God or we're serving the, uh, the adversary. And the wisdom from below is earthly, natural, demonic. We want nothing to do with any of that. But the wisdom from above, verse 17 here, James 3, 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness. Okay? Really, that's kind of an extraneous way to render that. It's just really the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we have, I think, as a, maybe not a sister passage, but a cousin, certainly, to what we're dealing with here tonight, that to having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Okay? I think we should add Ephesians 5.9 and James 3.13. But at the very least, we can keep it with Philippians 1.11 and Hebrews 12.11 with respect to what God does. He disciplines us. He loves us. He produces this fruit. He produces this fruit. The fruit of righteousness. All right? To, through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What does that mean? When does the Father work through Christ? Well, he does so quite a bit, actually. First Advent he did. He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So the Father was working through Christ then. I believe the Father is still working through Christ now. And the Father works through Christ not only on an evangelistic basis, but on an edifying basis. He works through Christ now. Okay, And we're going to see this repeatedly in uh, Philippians and Ephesians, that this is the this is uh, how the Father operates, through, uh, through Christ in us. Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. But having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you're looking for some kind of fruit apart from abiding in Christ, forget about it. <laughs> John 15 says it can't happen. That uh, apart from abiding in the vine, there is no fruit that can be born. Okay? And, uh, and so obviously it comes through Jesus Christ. He's the conduit. He's the tool. He's the agent. He's, uh, he's the faithful one. Remember, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Thank goodness all this comes through Jesus Christ. And then, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. And so we've got these expressions here, and these these are interesting too. And I And I don't know how far we can get with this. The the worst Bible class to attend is the one right before the pastor goes on vacation, because uh, I'll probably keep you here till midnight or, or later. Um, you got two weeks to think about this, week and a half. Think about this, okay? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you know anything else that we do through Christ to the Father? Can you think of... Um, so much of the plan of God that's through Christ to the Father. We think of how the Father through Christ created everything. Everything is created through Him and for Him. But then ultimately, once the thousand generations are complete, what does the Son do with that kingdom? He delivers it back to the Father. And if the Father is successful and causes every tongue to confess and every knee to bend, And if the Father provides maximum glorification for Jesus Christ, then who really gets glorified in in having done all that? It's going to be for the glory and praise of the Father for having done all that. And Jesus Christ is so blessed and and, uh, thrilled to be able to return 
all the glory, all the praise, all the love that the Father shines upon him, he is very delighted to hand it right back to the Father. That's that mutual reciprocal love that the Father and the Son have. So through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, this is the operational expression for everything we do in the body of Christ. If I'm going to pastor this church, I want to do so through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I don't want to try to pastor apart from being through Christ to the glory and praise of God. If I do, I'm off track. If I do, I'm misdirected. And um, let me just give you some verses to think about and some things to chew on. Not only here in chapter 1, but we're going to see it again in chapter 2. And in fact, it's, it's, again, it's that final expression and people ignore it because they're hurrying to get to the next paragraph. <laughs> and they think, well, it's just a doxology. It's just a flowery way to tie together a thing. And okay, we get that. Every knee will, will bow. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those that are in heaven, those that are on the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, is that where the sentence ends? That's where we always stop reading. That's where we stop thinking. That's where we stop concentrating. That's where, well, wait a minute, that's not where it ends. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh. Huh. Wow, there's, there's, uh, there's, another, there's another thing that's going to happen. <laughs> okay, so every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, to the glory of God the Father. You mean when He brings about everything perfectly from the Alpha to the Omega, when He glorifies Jesus Christ, when He gives His Son a thousand generations of those who love Him, what does Jesus then do? He delivers up the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. And so we have just a, a beautiful thing. When, and you can read about it in the plan of God reader. You can, you can think about these things. Consider the Father has been totally dedicated to glorifying the Son. You want to be a, a fellow worker with God the Father? Glorify Jesus Christ. Okay, But in so doing, what are you also doing? to the glory of the Father. Okay? To the glory of the Father. And so we see this here. It's through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And if you think about it, there's other expressions as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Remember this? Were you with us way back in the 1 Corinthians days? This was a while ago. It was a long while ago. I think chapter 8 is when Doug first arrived. This was a long time ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But um, talking about idolatry and the many gods and lords and all these so-called gods, these phony posers, <laughs> fallen angels that try to say they can be like God. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on the earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. See that? So we got the Father and we got the Son. We have from and we have through. We have a, there's, a, there's a plan here. We better figure out what that plan is because we're a part of it. Romans 11.36. Now I'm officially late. Romans 11.36. 
Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And here we are tonight, searching and fathoming. Isn't it beautiful? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has uh, first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a, that's a patrological text right there, okay? And then finally, Jude 25. Jude, who pays attention to Jude? Goodness, that's just that tiny little book that gets in the way of starting Revelation. Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I think that is a pure parallel to Philippians 1.11, Right? Or Philippians 1.10, to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Are you the one that's able to make that happen? He's the one that's able to make that happen. To keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with a great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You realize that's the Father being called Savior there? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. That's eternity past. And now, that's temporal present, and forever, eternity future. Amen. So through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God is the operational expression for everything we do in the body of Christ. And uh, there's a lot of meat there. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for these verses. And uh, I think we're drinking from a fire hose tonight, Father, so help us to uh, swallow some of that and and, uh, understand um, there are depths of truth, Father, that uh, um, we're so thankful that your Spirit leads us and guides us and shapes these studies. And Father, that uh, the eyes of our understanding can be enlightened so that we can know, Father, the length and width and height and depth. Thank you for all the dimensions of truth. And for the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to lead us into these things. Father, uh, be faithful. Continue to be faithful. I thank you for each brother and sister that came tonight. I thank you for uh, those that are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, Father. They're not coming for the fun and games or the entertainment. They're coming uh, to worship the Lord their God. And I thank you that uh, the truth is the truth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.